0: So good to see some faces here this morning that we haven't seen for a little while, and we're just hopeful and praying that everybody's staying well. We thank everyone for coming this morning, and welcome everyone that's uh, listening on the radio and those that are watching us on Facebook Live. Uh, A few announcements before we get started this morning. Uh, Thank you to Connie O'Neill this morning, our guest organist. Uh, Great job on that prelude. The congregational meeting planned for today will be rescheduled to a later date. The consistory is seeking additional information on the sound system quotes before making a recommendation to the congregation. Consistory members, please remember there is a meeting scheduled for tomorrow evening at 7.30. The roses on the altar this morning are in honor of three couples celebrating 50-plus wedding anniversaries. Happy anniversary to all. There are Lee and Diane Kettenry who will celebrate 57 years on March 1. Jerry and Judy Holscher who will celebrate 54 years on March 4th. And Dennis and Joan Henshin who will celebrate 56 years on March 5th. <clears throat> and there are three more wonderful Wednesday meals left, uh, this Wednesday, the 10th and 17th of March. The ministry doors open at 4:45, and we are done by 6:15. We had a nice crowd last week. Uh, we hope to expand upon that. If you can't get uh, in and eat with us in the in the ministry center, you're more than welcome to drive up to the west door in the ministry ministry center, where we have carryout meals also available. We sure hope to see everyone there, one way or the other. The menu this week is barbecued pulled pork sandwich, salad, chips. And cookie. And now, those that are able, if you would, please stand and join me in this morning's call to worship. This morning's call to worship comes from the Book of Psalm, chapter sixty-six, verses one through ten, and verses sixteen through twenty. Shout for joy to God, all the earth! Since the glory of His name make His praises glorious. Say to God, How awesome are Your deeds! How great is Your power! That your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praises Come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice him. He rules. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. Come and hear, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise, Praise be to God, God which of my prayer, who loved His mother from me. Now we will continue to stand and sing our opening hymn, number three eighty-two. Be Thou my vision. may be seated. We will now ask the children to come forward for a children's chat with Shelby.
1: morning. How are you guys? Luke, can you hold one? All right. Do what? No. All right. How are you guys this morning? Good. Can I have everybody who got a piece of paper go up there by Pastor Joel, just in that open area and just stand in some sort of a line? Stand in a straight line, okay? Only the people that got a piece of paper. If you didn't get one, if you guys can stay down here, you guys can help me watch, okay? Honey, do you want to go ahead and have a seat here? All right. All right. Has everybody got a piece of paper up here? Okay. Well, I have a very busy week this week, and you guys are going to help me keep everything in order, okay? All right. So, Addie is going to be my front of the line here, okay? Do you guys ever line up at school? Yeah? Do you guys line up to school to maybe go to, like, recess? What else things do you guys line up for? Maybe go to lunch? Do you want to go sit down right there? Do you want to go sit down? What else do you, bathroom. Okay, so you guys know what making a line is. Do you guys always have leaders in your lines? Who chooses your leaders in the lines? You have ABC order. So it's kind of predetermined. Does anybody say like, all right, well, so-and-so's birthdays today, they're going to be the leader. So line up behind the birthday boy or the birthday girl. No, well, that's how we did it when I was in school. When anybody got their birthday, you guys were at the front of the line. You got the special spot. Well, Ms. Addie right here is going to have our special spot, but I think everything is out of order. And, well, we have a schedule to follow. So I have to first go to school. So who has my school? Who has my yellow piece of paper? Miles, can you come up here? Come stand at the front of the line. All right. And then scoot down, guys. All right. <clears throat> you guys are sharing. Awesome. All right. Well, after school, I have to go home and I have to do homework. So who's got my homework? All right. You guys got to come to the front of the line and then the rest of you guys shift down. All right. Can you guys go on a shift on down? Because we got people new things that we're doing all week long. And they've got to come to the front of the line because that's the most important spot right now. Well, after that, who's got sports? Who does sports after they do school and homework? Can you come to the front of the line? Because i got sports next. Oh, man, i still got a busy day. When I get home, i got to do chores. Who's got my chores that I have to do today? Can you guys keep on moving down? We've got to create more room for the front of the line all right good job well after I get my chores done after I get my homework done and I get home from school I got to eat something right yeah so all right guys keep moving down we got new things coming to the front of the line well after I eat what do we want to do we want to spend time with our family so who's got my family time out here can you come to the front of the line? Thank you. All right. Well, after my family time, I want a little me time. Who likes to play? Who likes to play? I know everybody up here should like to play, right? All right. Well, next, I want to have a little me time, and I want to have play time. Can Miss Addie, can you come up here? Can you guys shift down that way? Nope, you can hold it. Okay. Okay. All right, here, come to the front of the line, Addie. I want you at the front of the line. Mr. Hudson, can you scoot down, bud? Thank you. Well, if we have all of this stuff that we do in a day, where do we ever fit Jesus? I think he should be at the first of the line, don't you? Yeah, because you know what? Even though we have time to eat, time to do chores, time to do homework, those are all things we have to do, but we should always... Can you can you hold up your sign really big? Here, turn it around so everybody can see. All right, can everybody hold up their signs like this so everybody in the crowd can see them? We always want to keep Jesus first in line in front of everything that we always do because you know what Jesus does and he should come first in our lives and you know what we can always fit him into playtime we can always fit Jesus into when we do our chores or when we're at school but Jesus always needs to come first because he is first in our hearts and whatnot. So thank you guys for your help. Can you guys, here, I'll take your piece of paper. You all want to have a seat and then we'll pray. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Miles. All right. You guys want to have a seat? Let's go ahead and pray. All right. Dear Jesus, I want to thank you today for always being a reminder that we need to keep you first in our lives. We need to keep you first before we do anything, whether it's chores or eating or spending time with family or spending time playing or spending time doing homework. We need to keep you first in our hearts, first in our minds, because you are first and you are the most important thing. In your son's name we pray, amen.
2: Thanks, Shelby. Thanks, kids. This time we have special music. Uh, Excited to have Connie O'Neill with us again this week, and Sue's helping her out. So enjoy this time's special music.
3: And all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom desperate plea and long that we have faith to believe cause what if your blessings come through raindrops what if your healing comes through tears and what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near and what if trials of this life Are your mercies in disguise? When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not, this is not our home. It's not. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know your need? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is a revealing of thirst this world can't satisfy. And what if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise?
2: God Thank you both. What a beautiful message and what a beautiful song to lead us into uh, a time of prayer and thinking about what we can be praying for. And as I was listening to that song, I couldn't help but think of the a verse from Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 20. It's the end of the story of Joseph. And if you're familiar with that story, uh, Joseph went through some pretty terrible things, didn't he? He was sold into slavery and abandoned by his own family, uh, found himself wrongfully accused and spending time in prison. And all of that, all of those circumstances God used to put him in a position where he was able to be second in charge to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And it was because of that position that he was not only able to save the, the Egyptians from famine, but also able to save his own family, the very family that sold him into slavery. And Joseph tells his brothers this, as he reveals himself, as he, as he shows himself to his brothers of who he truly is, he tells them this. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's what God is able to do. He's able to take our hardships. He's able to take our pain. Even the things that, that we go through in life and don't expect to see any good out of it. God is able to bring good out of those situations too. Um, and that song was a beautiful reminder of that. So thank you both for sharing that this morning. And, and it helps put things into perspective as we talk about how to pray for each other, right? Um, we pray often for relief or deliverance from different things. We pray for God's provision and those are good things to pray for. But we should also be praying and asking God, how? How can God bring good out of the situation? Where is the blessing in the middle of this storm, right? Where is the, where is the, the hope that we see? Where is God at work in the middle of these circumstances? And ask God to reveal those things to us so that we can rely on Him more and more. You know, there's a, uh, kind of, Starting a whole new sermon, I guess, here for a moment. But 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 there's this common lie, right, that, that we buy into that says God's never going to give us more than we can handle. How many of you guys have heard that, right? We hear that all the time. But Scripture never promises us that. What Scripture promises us is that, in fact, that we will have trouble in this world, that we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But God leads us and he allows us to experience those things so that we can rely on him all the more. Right? That's why he allows us to experience those things so that we can learn to trust him. We can learn to rely on him and his grace. So I encourage you, as you're praying for each other, uh, this week, as, as you pray for the names that are listed in the bulletin or other needs that you may know of, you know, think of, keep that in mind. Ask God to not only heal them and provide for them and deliver them from whatever situation they're facing, but also pray that God would use that to, to draw them to Himself, to, to be a blessing in the midst of that situation. And certainly ask God how you can be a blessing for them during that time. Reminds me, the, the song that we're about to sing here together uh, is Amazing Grace, number 202. And it reminds me, again, we, we've talked how God is, the, the special music reminded us that God is a blessing in the midst of those hardships, that he often uh, uses those things to to, to bless us. Um, and, and it's says amazing grace that that's possible. And I just want to read... Um, uh, verse four for you as we as we transition to this time of worship. Verse four of Amazing Grace says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Right? That's, that's why all of this is possible. That's why everything that we just heard sung, what I just talked about is possible because of God's amazing grace. And it's his grace that will see us through whatever difficulties we face. I encourage you, if you're able, to stand with us and sing number 202, Amazing Grace. And I invite you to pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for this time that we've had to worship you this morning. Lord, you are certainly worthy of all of our praise and all of the honor and glory that we can give you. Lord, it is because of your amazing grace that we can stand here today and, and be a part of your family, be, be members of your kingdom because of your amazing grace. Lord, as we'll hear about here in just a few moments it's not by ourselves. It's not by our works. It's not by our own doing that we can be saved. It is all because of you and what you've done for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you first and foremost for that this morning. Lord, we lift up those that are in need today. We pray for those represented in our bulletin and our prayers and concerns list. We also pray for our, our community, our state, our nation, our world. Lord, there's so much that we can be praying for. We could spend all morning, all day lifting up the things, Lord, that are that are wrong, the things that we want you to work in. Uh, But, Lord, you know what is needed. You know exactly what is going on. And so, Lord, we entrust those situations to your care. And we ask that you would work according to your will, which is what is certainly best for us. Lord, we often have ideas of how we think things should go or how we think you should act. But Lord, help us to get over our own, you know, pride, our own self-centeredness and help us to entrust ourselves and our families completely to you this day. Lord, we ask for your provision, not just for us as individuals and our families, but also for us as a church, that you would guide and direct our steps and that we would certainly make you first in everything that we do. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus as he taught his disciples to pray, saying,
4: Continuing on with our study in Galatians, I'm reading from Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to? But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing.
2: Thank you very much. Let's pray together again. Father God, as we open your word together now and continue to study, uh, continue the study of our book, of the book of Galatians, I ask for your guidance um, from your spirit this morning. May you give me words to speak and may you open up all of our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So there's a story that was once told about a zoo that was noted for the great collection of these different animals. One day the zookeeper discovered that the gorilla had died and passed away. Not wanting to disappoint the paying customers who were to arrive that day, he hired one of the one of the workers in the zoo to dress up like a gorilla and go and go spend time in the exhibit and try to pass it off for the real thing. And so this individual right he, he did what his boss told him to do. He put on the gorilla suit and he starts trying to act like a gorilla. Now, he's not very good at it, to be honest. And as he's trying to act like a gorilla and trying to trying to pass it off for the real thing, he finds himself kind of stumbling off the side of the exhibit. He kind of tumbles over the wall and falls into the exhibit next door. Now, this person knew that there was a lion housed next door, and he was terrified. So in full gorilla costume, he begins screaming out and crying out, Help me! Save me! Get me out of here! You hear the and suddenly fearing for his life, he hears the lion speak to him and says, "Come on, man, shut up. We're gonna get you're gonna get us both fired." <laughs> One of the issues that Paul brings up here in his in his letter to the Galatians, we see it coming to the surface here in this passage, is the problem of hypocrisy. Now, this is something that we've talked about many times before. Just a few weeks ago, even, hypocrisy came up as an issue. And the reason why it becomes is such a common issue is because it's something we still struggle with today. Right? Hypocrisy, on, on its very kind of basic surface-level meaning, is simply to play a part, to pretend to be something that you're not. Right. The word actually came from uh, actors in Greek plays who would the same person would play multiple different parts in a play. And so they would wear masks to cover their face. So when they would walk on stage with one mask, they the audience knew that they were pretending or they were they were acting as that particular character. They'd exit stage right and come back on with another mask. And the audience knew based on the mask they were wearing, which part they were playing. But Jesus uses this term in a different way, right? He's, he's taking that idea of mask wearing, of, of pretending to be something you're not, and he applies it in the New Testament, the Gospels, and we see Paul picking up on this theme here in Galatians. He applies it to people that are pretending, right? They're, they're, they're putting on a show. Jesus called the, called the religious leaders hypocrites. And here we see Paul accusing Cephas, who was Peter, of hypocrisy as well right we all it's it's a struggle like that that we see throughout the new testament but it continues to be a problem today we wear masks right we we continue to wear masks we play parts and i'm not talking about these ones right i'm not talking about these masks it's a problem we continue to face and we see paul accuse peter of it And we see the implications of it spelled out here in this passage. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But to set the stage, we need to kind of back up a little bit here, too. So we need to, we need to back up a little bit earlier into Galatians chapter two so that we kind of understand what's going on here. So Paul is writing Galatians and, and he's kind of, he's kind of defending himself. We looked at that last week a little bit. And then Paul spends the second half of chapter one and the first half of chapter two kind of defending his, his ministry. Right, Paul is is this minister, he's a missionary to the Gentiles. Right. And for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with, with biblical terms like that, Gentiles were pretty much anybody who was not Jewish. Uh, Jewish people saw the world as in two different groups. There were Jews and Gentiles. So there was people who were ethnically and religiously Jewish, and then there was everybody else. And so Paul spent a good portion of his ministry trying to spread the gospel to Gentile communities, right? And and the churches in Galatia were some of these Gentile communities. And so Peter, on the other hand, was often someone who was was called to to spread the gospel to Jewish communities. And we see that in in Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, On the contrary, they recognize that I... Had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, which is another way to refer to the, Jew, to the excuse me the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying we have we have two different mission fields, right? Two different groups of people we're trying to reach. But it's the same God and it's the same gospel that's at work in both of those cases, right? And so so the gospel is the same. God, of course, is the same. That doesn't change. But the way in which those different people groups are reached uh, may change. The methods that are used may change. But Paul here is not talking about that, right? He's not accusing Peter or himself of hypocrisy by trying to reach these different people groups with the same gospel message. What is he accusing Peter of here? We see that here beginning in chapter 2, verse 11. Right, Peter visits Antioch, which was this Gentile region. And as it, when he arrives there, he begins to eat with Gentile believers, which from our modern perspective, we may not pick up on the big deal there. But but from in that time, in that day and age, there were a couple things going on. One, according to Jewish custom and law, Jews typically did not share meals with Gentiles. Right? It was, uh, it was against kosher laws and rules. There was a chance that they might consume something, right, that was considered unclean. And so by rule, by practice, Jews and Gentiles typically did not share meals together. But meals also signified a close relationship and fellowship in that day. You didn't just share a meal with anybody. You shared meals with close, personal friends. Right? Why else do you think Jesus got in so much trouble from the Pharisees and other religious leaders when he shared meals with, quote, tax collectors and sinners? Right? Jesus would spend time with them. He'd share meals with them. He even went into their homes and the religious leaders accused him and, and, and he was guilty by association, right? And so sharing a meal with someone was more than just sitting at the same table. It was a sign of close friendship and association, And so Peter does that, right? He shows up on the scene, and and when he first arrives there, he's fellowshipping with the Gentile believers in the church. But then something happens, doesn't it? It says that there were some Jewish Christians, some Jewish believers that arrived on the scene, and as soon as they showed up, Peter quit associating with the Gentiles. Peter quit eating with them, quit, quit sharing meals with them. But it wasn't just that. Not only did he stop doing that, he started to teach and it says even compel, which is a pretty strong word, compel the Gentile believers to start acting like Jewish believers. Do you see what was happening there? Not only was he stopping, not only did he stop doing what he was doing, he was also trying to get people to follow him in that behavior, Now it's interesting. Peter of all people should know, should have known that it was okay to associate or eat with Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, which would have chronologically speaking taken place before this, right, Peter has this vision of, of, of a blanket coming down from heaven. If you're familiar with it in Acts chapter 10, Peter's praying on a rooftop and he sees this vision from the Lord of this, it's like a picnic blanket being lowered down and there's all these unclean foods on it and God tells him, go and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, you know, I'm not supposed to do that. And God says, what I have, nothing is unclean if I've said that it was clean. And immediately after this vision happens, Peter is invited to go speak at the house of a Gentile ruler. His name is Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion. And this Cornelius was a good God-fearing man, it says, and he'd been praying. And God sends Peter to Cornelius' house in order to share the gospel and teach him about Jesus. And while he's there, and they put their trust in Jesus and believe, they, they receive the Holy Spirit. And at that point, Peter recognizes, he says, look, if, if, if they've received the Holy Spirit, right, if they've, if they've believed, what's stopping them from being a part of our fellowship? He, and so he baptizes them right then and there. So Peter himself recognized that, that God doesn't play favorites, that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to faith in Christ, that we are all in the same We're all in the same boat. But suddenly he's having a change of heart, right? Suddenly there's these other other Jewish Christians that show up and Peter starts pulling back on what he believes to be true. As soon as they show up, Peter changes his tune and stops eating with the Gentiles. And that is hypocrisy, right? He knows something is true. He knows God himself had shown it to him. And yet in this instance, he starts pulling back. Peter was not acting the same now that he was around some different people, right? And that is, at its core, the definition of hypocrisy, right? And again, we look at these stories, we hear these stories, we look at these individuals and we say, how foolish, right? If I had an experience like that, I certainly wouldn't have, have been a hypocrite. I wouldn't have backed, pe- backpedaled like that. But let me ask you this question. Are you the same person at church and at work, and at school, and at home, right? Can you, can, are you the same person in all those different settings? Or do you change your behavior? Do you change the way that you talk? Do you change the way that you, that you view things based on the people that you're around, right? I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we truly examine ourselves, right, we may find that we too are hypocrites at different times. Because we say we, we say things and we do things and we think things, right, at work or when we're on friends that we would never do when we're sitting in the pews here at church. And that is hypocrisy. And that's what Paul is, is calling Peter out about here. Why do we do these things? Well, there's probably any number of reasons. Maybe to fit in so that we can be accepted by people that we think are important or popular. Sometimes we do it to avoid hard conversations. We don't, you know, the, the topic of faith comes up and instead of taking that opportunity to share the gospel, we, we back off and avoid it so that we don't have to put ourselves on the spot. At the core, though, it's about valuing or pleasing other people rather than pleasing God. All right, And that's really what the core of hypocrisy is. It's, it's a self-centered way of looking at things. It's putting ourselves and our own comfort and our own preferences ahead of what God desires from us. The solution to, to hypocrisy, the, the fix is to be a person of integrity. A person of integrity, is this, they're, they're the same when they're alone as they are with other people. They're the same when they're in church as they are when they're at work. The idea of integrity comes with it, like this idea of being unbroken, right? Being whole and being complete. And that's what God desires of us. He desires that we're the same and that we're consistent and that we put Him first in all things, no matter where we are, no matter who is around us. Notice here, hypocrisy doesn't just affect us. We like to think that sometimes our sin and our selfishness, it doesn't affect anybody else. But we see here Peter, Peter's hypocrisy in this case Right, is affecting other people. It's affecting other believers. And even, Paul even says Barnabas, one of his partners in ministry, has been led astray by this, by this thinking, by, by what Peter has done. We need to recognize that our hypocrisy influences other people. Maybe it's our own family. Maybe it's our co-workers. Maybe people at church. Peter not only stops eating with the Gentiles, but he also compels, like I said, a very strong word, compels them to start living like Jews. In other words, he's compelling these Gentile believers to start following Jewish kosher laws and customs and regulations and laws. So he's not just changing his own behavior, but he's expecting other people to follow suit as well. In the 1800s, this was a big problem for a lot of European missionaries, right? Europe Europe at that time was kind of the sending area for, for missionaries all around the globe. But what, one of the problems that they faced when they were going to places like Africa or Asia was that they were not just bringing the gospel with them they were bringing their own cultural preferences and their own way of doing things with them as well. So it wasn't when they were when they were trying to share the gospel with these people it became less about the gospel and more about becoming like European Christians. And it's no surprise that there was very you know there was some good that happened of course but it didn't have the impact that it probably could have if they were able to separate the the gospel from their own cultural preferences and identity. But that's what Peter's expecting them to do. He's expecting these Gentiles to become Jews as well as Christians, right? And following their customs and their laws. The problem here besides Peter's hypocrisy, is this idea of works righteousness. And I started to talk about this last week. It's this idea that, that we need to do something. We need to act a certain way. We need to be a certain kind of person in order for us to truly receive God's grace and forgiveness. Right? And any time you start talking about that, whether you're talking about Jewish customs, whether you're talking about European culture from the 1800s, or any other, any other social or cultural you know, identity, we're missing something. We're taking something away from the gospel. We become modern-day Pharisees. Jesus accused the Pharisees of, in Matthew 23, 4 of tying up heavy, cumbersome loads and putting them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves were not lifting, willing to lift a finger to move them. He's talking about these rules and these regulations that are being placed on people. Again, let me ask you this, what burdens do we place on people that prevent them from coming to Christ? Right, what hurdles do we expect people to jump through in order to be a part of this church or to be a part of God's kingdom? Or let me put it this way. If I were to ask you this question, I want you to think about the first thing that comes to mind. I'm not expecting anyone to be brave enough to actually say it out loud, but think of it, right? What do you think is the bare minimum that someone needs to do in order to be saved? What do you think is the the absolute bottom level requirement to be a follower of Christ? Let me challenge you in this. If you, if you, if something came to mind beyond believing and trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've added something to the gospel. Right? Because that's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. That's what the gospel says is that there is nothing we can do or need to do in order to be saved besides trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior believing in him repenting from all those other things we make lord and savior and trusting in Jesus that's the gospel and so we need to we need to remember passages like Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 that says for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God it's not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do remember last week i said good works are important But, But we need to remember the order that they should come in. It's salvation first. It's faith in Jesus first. And then the good works, not the other way around. But what Peter was trying to get these Gentile Christians to do was put the good works, put the laws, put the regulations first in order to experience the grace of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that is backwards. That is the wrong way of looking at things. we're saved in order to do good works we don't do good works in order to be saved and that's what the works righteousness gospel teaches us it teaches us that we need to do something we need to fix ourselves we need to put ourselves we need to put ourselves in order in order for god to love or accept us but the gospel says That God loves us and accepts us just the way we are. And that when we put our faith and trust in Him, that's when He starts to change us from the inside out, right? The order is important. When we focus on a works righteousness gospel, it says that Jesus' death wasn't enough. It says that He couldn't save you through His shed blood and His death on the cross. That we somehow need to finish the job that He started. That salvation... Right? Our own salvation is ultimately dependent upon us, not Jesus. And then it's, it's up to us to get the job done and to maintain it. But again, that's the wrong way of looking at things. Paul here says that we are justified not by our works, in verse 16, but by faith. Right. Justified means being made right before God. It's, it's the idea of like a legal standing. You're declared guilty or you're declared innocent. Right. It's a black or white. It's a binary kind of decision. Right. There's not shades of gray in the middle. You're either guilty or you're innocent. And so Paul says you are justified. You were declared innocent before God on the basis of faith. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or all saved the same way. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's what matters. In Romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 24, Paul says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, the key there is justified freely by his grace, right? We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. No matter who you are, where you were born, what kind of life you've lived, we are. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's the gospel. So in that way, Jews and Gentiles are like, whether you have the law or whether you don't, right? It doesn't matter. We are all in the same boat. There's a level playing field. And in the same way, all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Not by our good works, but by grace. And so let me me make this abundantly clear for you today. Your salvation is not dependent upon you, the kind of family you grew up in, or the kind of life you lead. It's completely dependent on God's grace. Period. End of story. Right? God saves us through Christ, and there's nothing we can do to add or take away from that. All we can simply do is receive that grace, receive that good gift by faith. I want to draw your attention to verse 21, the last verse here in this passage. Paul here says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Right? Jesus didn't die to make us better people. Right? He died because we couldn't be good enough. If salvation, if it was possible to be saved through the law, if it was possible for our good works to earn us a place in God's kingdom, then Jesus died for nothing. Right? Jesus died precisely because we can't save ourselves. And that's really what the law is supposed to do. The law, God gives us the law so that we can understand that. The law is given to us so that we can recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That none of us, no matter how good we try to be, can possibly live up to that standard. And so therefore we need to depend on God's grace all the more. If you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to look at Galatians chapter 3. Again, this isn't printed in your bulletin, but Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul explains how this is possible. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. See that there? It's 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 Christ became the the curse for us, right? He died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. Now Paul brings up a point here. He he asks does this does this kind of grace does the gospel of grace promote sin? Does it excuse sinful behavior? And his response is absolutely not. Right? It takes sin incredibly seriously because even the slightest infraction of the law is is considered guilty enough in that That it need to be it was considered that they broke the law entirely, Christ died for the greatest sin as well as for the smallest sin right it 's those who promote a works based righteousness that don 't take sin seriously. If you think that you can be good enough in your own power to satisfy the demands of a perfectly holy, just, and righteous God, then you have no clue just how serious sin is, right if you think that you can somehow Earn your way into God's family by your good works, you don't truly understand how serious sin is. Sin demands punishment, it requires payment in full. And let me tell you, there's no way that you or me or any one of us can pay that ourselves. Our good works are like trying to empty an ocean with a thimble, right? It's just never going to happen. No matter how much we scoop it out, it's not going to make a difference. Paul says our good works are worthless, they're garbage. But the price was paid, not by me and not by you, and certainly not by our good works. They were paid by Jesus, His perfectly obedient life, His sacrificial death, and His glorious resurrection. Right, that's why it says that we've died to the law. The law serves, did serve a purpose, as I just talked about. Its purpose was to show us how sinful we truly were so that we could depend on God's grace all the more. And it says that we died to the law, which means that we no longer live... We're no longer beholden to it, right? It has no power over us. For what the law was unable to do, right, what God's law was unable to do, which was to save us, to justify us before God, Jesus did for us on the cross, right? So no, we, we are no longer, uh, re- the law has no power over us in the sense that it, it's not the arbiter of our faith. It's not what determines if we're saved. Our ability to hold, uphold it or, abil- or, or our ability to fail it to uphold it, right? Is not what determines whether we're saved. What determines whether we're saved is faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus died for us so that we can live for God. Paul says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he lives it says I live now by faith in the Son of God. All right, Just real quick, I want to break down what he means by that, right? He says it's no longer I who live, which means we're no longer living for ourselves, no longer living to please ourselves. We're no longer living lives of sin where our our own preferences, our own desires, are at the center of our decision making. Right? It's no longer about me. But we also no longer live for the law. We no longer live to, live to satisfy the law. Which means we're no longer uh, we no longer have to commit to this idea of works righteousness, this never ending hamster wheel of trying to please God and constantly failing because of our sin. There's a a myth in ancient Greece about, um, oh, what was his name? I just drew a blank. Uh, Sisyphus, that's quite a name. Um, He was punished by the gods to spend eternity pushing a boulder up a hill. And every time he managed to get the boulder to the top, he would turn around and there it was at the bottom of the hill again. He was doomed for eternity, according to this myth, to push this boulder uphill over and over and over again. I think that's a great picture of what works righteousness is about. It's constantly trying to push a boulder uphill, constantly trying to earn our way into God's family and never being able to do enough to satisfy it because there's nothing we can do. So we don't live for ourselves and we don't live to satisfy the law. What does that leave us? We live for Christ his spirit in us, to live, to love, serve, and obey him. Not concerned about what others may think and never having to worry about whether we've done enough to earn God's love because he's shown it to us on the cross. You know how you fix the hypocrisy issue? You know how you fix the integrity issue? No longer living for yourselves, but living for Christ Christ no matter who you are, where you are, or what circumstance you find yourselves in. If you're living for Jesus, if you're living to please him and serve him and love him, then you never have to worry about being a hypocrite because he will always be first in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, Lord, that we can't save ourselves. Lord, because if it were up to us, all of us, including myself, would fail miserably. Thank you, Lord, that you don't call us to change who we are first in order to be accepted into your family, but that you love us and accept us just as we are in order, Lord, to shape us and mold us more and more into your image. Help us, Lord, to rely on your grace first and foremost. And, Lord, we do ask that you would change us more and more into your image by your Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we close our service today, I invite you to stand and let's sing... Um, Can we sing the first two verses of Take My Life and Let It Be? It's number 379 379 in your blue hymnals, the first two verses. may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. You may go in peace.